What is make it? Making it means, uh, I suppose that it means uh, you're at a, a level where you are happy with what you are doing and uh, you're being acknowledged by your peers. And uh, hopefully you uh, you know, have a roof over your head and then the plate of McNuggets in front of you or something mm-hmm. better. Yeah. Welcome to Making It with Terry Woolman, the show that explores the secrets, successes, and strategies for making it in the music biz. And now, here's your host, Terry Woolman. Welcome to the show, and thanks for tuning in. I want to let you know how much I appreciate you joining us on our show every week. If you missed our last interview, you can hear it and all of our episodes at entertalkradio.com slash making it, or download our app and take us with you. You can also hear us on Spotify and iTunes as a podcast. So, so often I get asked questions about the creative process. So I created this show to focus on what it takes to have a lasting career in the ever lands, the ever changing landscape of the entertainment business. You're really in for a treat as I've invited my friends, some of the best and brightest in music and art to share their stories on how they have influenced the music and comedy that have shaped our lives. I guarantee you're going to love it. So let's get started. My guest today is Bruce Valanche. Bruce Gerald Valanche is an American comedy writer, songwriter, and actor. He is a six-time Emmy Award winner. Valanche is best known to the public for his four-year stint as a celebrity participant on Hollywood Squares, while also working behind the scenes as the head writer for the show. In 2000, he performed off-Broadway in a self-penned one-man show, Bruce Valanche, Almost Famous, Since 2000, Valanche has been the head writer for the Oscars after being an Oscar program co-writer for the previous 10 years. He is also a featured writer for the Tonys, Grammys, and Emmys. Valanche was the subject of the documentary Get Bruce. This film includes interviews with Bette Midler, Robin Williams, Billy Crystal, and Whoopi Goldberg. Bruce's mother, whom he credits with developing his sense of humor, also appeared in the documentary. Please welcome my guest today, Bruce Valanche. Hey, Bruce, welcome. It's exciting. It sounded like a little Wikipedia, which means you would get to the part where it says I'm a vegan, which is hysterical because I'm not. You're right. I didn't think you were. No, but I mean, yeah, it has all other kinds of, and people can like punk your Wikipedia page and put in stuff that, uh, you know, nobody checks. So I'm I'm always, periodically I go there to find out what I've done that I didn't realize. (laughs) <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, also it, your IMDb, IMDb page is remarkably short, which I found fascinating. You know, and it basically says Bruce Valanche was born November 23rd, 1948, in New York City, New York. He's a writer and actor known for You Don't Mess With the Zohan, the 64th Annual Academy <laughs> Awards, that's and Comic cool. Release yeah. 5. <laughs> that's your that's your complete credits. <laughs> really? Yeah. I thought I yeah. was well, you know, IMDb. It, 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 it's, it's funny because 
uh, years ago, uh, I had an agent at the William Morris office who, uh, who said, um, you know, you can lose the, the last three pages of your credits because, uh, uh, it makes you too old. Oh. <laughs> you don't want to, you, you want to tell people that you're old enough to have done all of that stuff, that you were around back then. Right. So, you know, I thought, okay, well, this is, I guess it's the ultimate show business compliment of some sort. I suppose anyway. so. it is, you know, so Bruce, <laughs> you know, it, it appears that your career has gone so well that you actually don't need to stay current on your credits anymore. Do you, do you pay attention besides, you know, checking wiki for just for laughs to see, you know, what people are making up about you or do you, uh, do you I, find it important to, to keep putting all of your new projects up on your website? You know, and, I get, uh, actually, I, you know, I don't put them up. I mean, I, I think, uh, when other things like, you know, get registered, I mean, it's, Anything that goes through any uh, guild crediting procedures, stuff like that, that's where they, they comb those lists of things. And they, right. they whoever is in charge of those websites puts, puts the stuff out. I mean, I never see. Occasionally, I'll throw something in. I mean, there was a movie that I was in. I made a picture with Marcello Mastroianni in 1972 mm. uh, uh, called, excuse me, my name is Rocco Papaleo. It has a distinction of being the only Marcello Mastroianni movie to flop in Italy and he was a huge Italian star and a a big star around the world. Anyway. So, uh, and I, 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 I want to be credited with that. That Of course. (laughs) It's such a classy flop, but I thought I, I, you know, I needed to be credited with that. So, so I, I forget, I think I actually did an IMDB. I I submitted it and they added it. (laughs) Just, which made me laugh. (laughs) Otherwise, no, I never, I mean, I look at those things occasionally just to see if, if the contact information is correct. Or right. That's I've, I've switched agents without realizing it. <laughs> because that's what happens. Somebody else can submit stuff for you. And they never, they never asked me anything. They didn't like, well, was, we have a submit like, are you a vegan? You know, like I never got right. a letter from Wikipedia saying, please uh, discuss your dietary status with us. <laughs> right. Yeah. They just put it up. I figured that's what Julian Assange is doing in that Ecuadorian embassy. He's looking over everybody's wiki entry and deciding what's real and what isn't. I would hope he's using his time well. You know, (laughs) why not that? (laughs) I know. Well, he found his hair color, so that's good. (laughs) So let's talk about the the opening song that that we kicked the show off with, Sex Over the Phone. I I just discovered that yesterday. I had no idea. That was what it was. I couldn't really hear it, but uh, that's a Village People song. It sure is. um, (laughs) It is. It show is, and it actually went to number one on BBC Radio One, which it was, and then it was banned by BBC Radio One because it was found to be encouraging people to have sex over the phone. Like people need encouragement to do that. <laughs> like it isn't a concept that they light upon themselves with no help from any of us. Uh, it was a. It it started because I wrote the first draft of a movie called Can't Stop the Music which was the village people movie. Right. And, uh, it's a, it's a, a long story, but there was a producer named Alan Carr who did a lot of, uh, extravagant things. And sure. he decided that the village people would be a, the, the creation of the village people would be a terrific story. And so, uh, I wrote, I wrote a first draft script and then I, after he kept auditioning, I, he kept having me rewrite it for different actresses to play the, the woman who put the group together, which of course never really happened. And after the, after the third rewrite, uh, 
for free. I said, you know, you owe me more money now. And then he said, okay, you're, you're off the picture. (laughs) 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 And my collaborator on the movie wound up writing all the other drafts. And of course it got, it got made, but, uh, and it was a, a gigantic, a legendary bomb. And, um, but the good news was for me, I got friendly with Jacques Morali, who was the the guy who actually did create the Village People. He was a, a French uh, composer who came over to New York and was dazzled by the whole you know gay village scene and put this this act together and wrote all their big hits that you know YMCA and and Go West and you know all that Macho Man, right? And um, but we got friendly in the course of doing this the movie and. Jacques had written for uh, a show in Paris called a club called the crazy horse. And it was a, a big deal Paris nightclub. It was one of those things you went to like the Lido and the Folly Bergere. And it was in topless girls. And the, the gimmick in, in the crazy horse show was all of the, the girls uh, who came on stage sang topless, but they were not singing. They were lip syncing. And, Famous singers were recording original material that the girls were singing. And uh, he said um, he had an idea for a song for Eartha Kitt. So he, uh, it was called Where Is My Man? Right. And uh, so he said, right, I think, you're, I think you are a lyricist, chérie, he said. And so I sat down and wrote this lyric uh, to the melody he had come up with. And I had to call Eartha and audition the thing. And so, I, you know, I sang it like Eartha. I said, where is my baby? I don't want to be alone. Where is my man? And Eartha listened and she said, you do a very good impression of me. If I hear you're doing it for a living, I will kill you. <laughs> so she rec- she recorded the song and a spectacular statuesque blonde uh, woman came out and sang uh, lip sync to the song and um, Jacques went and got the Earth's version played on, on French radio and it took off it became a disco hit all over the world that was and the early result, 80s I suddenly it? the what? that was around or the early 90s it was that, that, that uh, song came out, right? Probably, yeah. I would, I would think it was, yeah, early nineties, late eighties, mm-hmm. something like that, something around there. Because the the movie uh, we met, well, the movie was uh, 79, 80, and then it was a few years after that, so it might have been a little bit earlier, like eighty five. Okay. In any event, um, now I was a writer of disco songs with Jacques Morali, and the next project was his the New Village People album. Oh. That's how and it led to at that, that point, yeah. the village people had already, they'd crested the, the movie here had done them irreparable damage. And, uh, they were now they'd gone from being the hottest thing to being the squarest thing. But in the rest of the world, they were still a terrific novelty act and they were selling records. So I went to Paris and, uh, sat with him and we recorded an album with them. And, um, it was called Sex Over the Phone. That was the uh, that was the, the lead single. We had a whole bunch of uh, of songs. That, uh, of course, I can't remember now. But Sex Over the Phone was the one that kind of took off, and uh, it was immediately it was a huge hit in England, and then was immediately banned by the BBC and became a cause celeb. So, uh, in those days, they had you know, all the radio was was uh, in England was. Um, uh, was run by the state, by the BBC and by, um, not, you know, like public radio kind of things. But mm-hmm. there were commercial stations that operated from ships offshore. And the biggest one was Radio Caroline, 
which was actually broadcast from a ship that was anchored just past the three-mile limit. So it was in international waters, and the government couldn't get at it. And they would run all the stuff that the BBC wouldn't play. And it was a huge underground station, like a progressive rock station. And they kept playing <laughs> sex over the phone <laughs> and all these village people songs. And uh, so it, it has a tiny spot in, in, in the niche of, of British musical history. But you know, and, it, uh, it, it. But you've anyway, also. You, I mean, what what surprised me most when I when I rediscovered that song was that you you have really influenced pop culture in so many more genres and in so many more ways than than I realized. You know, not just as a writer yeah. and as an actor, but you know that that you have really done things in the music industry as well. It's pretty wonderful. Wow. It's great, but it doesn't get me laid. But it's great. It, well, then there's something wrong because that's why we all there's got in bands to begin with. Because I'm, the, the show business model isn't working. <laughs> Either that or it's me. It's personal hygiene. Who knows? I actually have, I can't imagine you not, you know, being able to get laid whenever you want to. You're, you're such a great guy. I, you know, I know, but it's, you know, it's any excuse for a cheap joke. It got me out of Jersey, right. you know? I mean, right. Well, hey, hello, so Hello, Jersey. Go- I know they're all listening. Let, let's go back to your your childhood. With I, I know that you were adopted and adopted into a family that would turned out to be pretty perfect for you. Can you can you they talk about great. your mom and dad? And I was born in New York, and at four days I was taken to Patterson, New Jersey, with the first of many insults because now nobody would admit to being from Patterson anymore. Mm-hmm. The only things people remember Patterson for are Hurricane Carter and uh, played by Denzel. And right. my high school principal, Jolton Joe Clark, with a baseball bat, bat played by Morgan Freeman, <laughs> in a picture in a picture Lean on Me, uh, and that was my high school East Side in Patterson. And while there are like tons of of legendary, distinguished alumni, nobody wants to claim the place. I mean, it's just it's it's, it's, it's a sad story. But uh, uh, sometimes I wax nostalgic for it. But I grew up there, and <laughs> my father was a doctor, and my mother was a showgirl who never really. Uh, got into the big shows because she got married when she was young and wound up doing all of this um, charity work as a, as a dancer. And so I think that probably um, oozed down to me. I wound mm-hmm. up doing all this free charity work because I, I saw the example that she set. But also they loved the theater. My father loved Broadway. He loved musicals. He invested in them. He made a little bit of money on them. And uh, so I grew up going into musicals, uh, you know, over Thanksgiving, uh, people were saying, well, what, we want to have a traditional Thanksgiving. And I, I would say, you know, a traditional Thanksgiving in my family was we drove into the city to see a matinee because they always had Thanksgiving matinees. Then. And then we went down to the village to my father's favorite restaurant, the steak joint, <laughs> and avoided turkey. So it was an, an extremely chic way to spend Thanksgiving. You know, it, we yeah. were not sitting around the table with a lot of people arguing and farting. We were mm-hmm. we were really in the thick of culture, and that was what my my life was like. They were very uh, into all of those things, and and I was immediately struck by show business and and I like to make faces in the mirror so they encouraged me to do that they encouraged me to 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 do that professionally so I was a child actor I was never a child star or we'd be having this conversation in rehab yeah that actually was, worked out to your advantage yeah uh, yeah 
It did. Well, they were very grounded. They they also wanted me to do something that would that would that would provide a livelihood. So they encouraged writing of all things, because it was clear I wasn't going to be a doctor, and it was clear I wasn't I wasn't going to be a trial lawyer, which they thought would be a good way for me to act. You know, they take me <laughs> right. to see Orson Welles in in movies like Compulsion, and and I got to watch you know Gregory Peck in To Kill a Mockingbird. I got to make watch people making you know big courtroom scenes. Lionel Barrymore, Spencer. Tracy, and uh, none of it rubbed off. I said, "Why would I want to do that in a courtroom? Who, who cares? I want to do it on a stage." <laughs> so uh, uh, that was what I pursued, and it was always writing and acting back and forth between the two. From then on, and you, your de- your degree that you got from Ohio State was in theater and journalism, right? That is true. It was yeah, it was a five year thing, arts education. It's true. It, Totally true. To be true was the stay out of Vietnam degree, because yeah. uh, when you were in college in those days, if you had a student deferment and you quit, you graduated or left, you were immediately made uh, went from two S to two A, and you were drafted and uh, sent over. And we were all trying to avoid that because we were all against the war and nobody wanted to go fight it. So, uh, I mean, the people who did, a lot of the people who went didn't want to go. They were, they had no choice. I mean, obviously there were some people, you know, like Oliver Stone who, who wanted to, uh, to be a part of it, but that was not my crowd. So it's not the theater crowd. No, I I remember uh, because I, I was on the tail end of the draft. You know, yeah, I, so you know, was born in, the, yeah. the lottery, did you have you were a lottery number and all that? Yeah, I had a lottery number. It was the last year of, of the draft. Yeah, when I was in high Great. school. Yeah. Yeah, well, I had it and I was, you know, I actually got drafted. So I got to go down and 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 check the box <laughs> so that I didn't have to go. But I mean, I still right. have the student deferment. And the idea right. is as long as you can hold on to your student deferment, you should hold on to it. Right. And so I did, as many of us did. It was interesting to me uh, a few years ago now that I think about this, when uh, Bush and Quayle and Clinton were all running for president, nobody went, they kind of cordially agreed not to mention each other's service records because they didn't have any. They had all found ways to avoid going. Right. Because they were of their generation, which is to say my generation, where mm-hmm. everybody found a way not to go. And the people who went were much more working class guys than than we were. Anyway, this has nothing to do with the music business or show business well, or anything but, else. It'll only get me into trouble. So, hey. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this show is is about life, you know, that's, and it's about the creative process and, and art and, you know, comedy and music. But it's also about just the journey, you know, that we're on. So I'm, I love hearing you, you share that part of your, your story. I think it's important. You know, it's part of what made you who you are. I always thought, yeah, I, I mean, it is, especially now that everybody, you know, all of us are arcing into our dotage and we're right. reminiscing about these things and it's like, it's you know, too old to matter. Now I, re- I remember every time I look at Prince Charles, I think uh, he's my age. And I think kind of uh, he looked, yeah. he was untouched by anything that happened to our generation. Right. <laughs> because true. he was he raised sort of to be, to be king of England. Right. And so like, you know, the Beatles didn't, didn't hit him. <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
Vietnam didn't hit him. Uh, drugs didn't hit him. All those things that hit every one of us never hit him because he was in this bubble. And I don't know. I yeah. find that fascinating too. So he winds up now being an architecture critic and a, and a, a climate change activist, which is not a bad thing. So, but you know, he also, so, he's, had, he's had a rocky road. <laughs> That's true. I want to talk about your your writing career because it's it's opened so many doors for you, and I I know that you work for the Chicago Tribune and as the entertainment writer, and you had this goal to spend as much time as you could with celebrities, and I'm wondering why was that important to you? Is that just, or was that, did you have a plan? I guess that's my question. Did you have a plan? It wasn't my goal to do that. I don't know if that's written somewhere. It is. So I guess it's incorrectly written. That is it quoted by me from me. No, no, it's not a quote by you. It's, it's, uh, I don't remember where I read it just from Googling you. Um, it basically said as an entertainment writer, he began spending time with as many celebrities as would let him. So, well, that's true because I, that was my job. I was a feature writer for the Chicago Tribune and uh, mm-hmm. I was doing profiles of, uh, we used to call them visiting firemen, of celebrities mm-hmm. of people who were coming through and plugging, uh, and plugging their shows. So the mm-hmm. more the merrier because that was how we filled the pages. But, I mean, it's also fascinating. I mean, so I think celebrity is a, a never-ending source of, uh, of amusement and horror. And so... Uh, <laughs> Being being in the presence of them and then becoming one myself twenty years later when I went on Hollywood Squares uh, was was uh, the, the, getting to enjoy it from both sides, just like Joni Mitchell. Is both sides now um, <laughs> pitching right. high for, for those who go go listen to the song, um, right? But is that the first time you actually felt like a celebrity? Because I I already maybe just because we have mutual friends and are we're in the same business, but. I always already viewed you as somebody who was well known, but you, I was you say well known. I think I was well known in the industry. I'd been actually on television uh, before that in the uh, um, in the late seventies on the Midnight Special, which was a show NBC ran at one o'clock in the morning on Fridays. Mm-hmm. It ran from one to two thirty. It followed uh, the Tonight Show, which in those days ran from eleven thirty to one. And it was uh, uh, rock and roll. It was it was pop music live. I mean, doing live performances on a soundstage at NBC. And uh, what what happened was video came in with the advent of cable. Video came in, and uh, everybody did videos. Nobody wanted to come to Burbank and do another live performance. Uh, for a show that was on at one o'clock in the morning where they said, show my video. And there was a competing show called Don Kirshner's rock concert right. that did just show videos pretty much. And we, uh, midnight special, um, the whole brand was, it was, uh, in concert. So as there were fewer acts that would do it, they had to find something to fill that time. And they came up with Dick Ebersole who was the producer came up with an idea of having, like a dorm room conversation among off the wall semi celebrities. So it was kind of like politically incorrect with Bill Maher or actually, you know, what Bill Maher does now, uh, but it was much less formal. And uh, I was a guest on the first show and David Steinberg, the comedian was a, uh, the host. And after the first show he quit 
<laughs> and I came back for the second show, and uh, Dick Ebersole said, you're the host. So I was the host, and these segments would be peppered throughout the Midnight Special. And for a couple of years, until the Midnight Special finally expired, because it was, and the network didn't want them showing, just showing videos. Uh, I was on television, so there was a certain, uh, there was a, a strata of people who were up at two o'clock in the morning on a Friday who recognized me on the street mm-hmm. in the supermarkets. But, so I had a certain kind of weird, you know, stone celebrity. It was, right. uh, th- so uh, you know, and I got known through that and through a bunch of other things. And, uh, but Hollywood Square is where you're on prime time, more or less, uh, five nights a week for you know, six years it was, uh, that's a different kind of thing. And that's were you, like, you really, you really in their face. And, uh, was that and still, around the, uh, still, sorry for I interrupting. Mean, they still know me from it, but it's not, you know, it's not, I used to do when, when Barry Manilow got very famous and he had that, have, uh, tailors come to the house to, uh, to make him clothing because he couldn't go shopping because he was mobbed everywhere he went. Right. And would go out in disguises and stuff. It's not that kind of celebrity. Mm-hmm. It's just the kind where they they recognize you and they go, "Oh, look, that guy! <laughs> oh, it's that guy!" Right. Well, but, you also so have that, a very that's how you recognizable know you, you face. Gotten to a, another level. Yeah. Did, was that job kind of round the clock for you? Because not not only were you on camera, but you were also the head writer for the show. Did you go yeah, in in the morning I mean, and start? It was a, the way we did the show is to shoot it on the weekends. We would shoot a week's oh. worth in a day. So we would nice. do two weekends a month, which meant, which was four weeks of programming. And we, we did 36 weeks a year. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, technology had come in to the point where we could do a lot of it online, a lot of the writing and the editing um, and, and parsing of material and whatnot. We didn't have to go into an office and we didn't have to sit around a table. I mean, it was, it was a perfect vehicle for the internet because it was, we were just, you know, writing jokes. I mean, we didn't have to write anything more than just a line for this and a line for that. So there was a team that, that wrote questions and a team that wrote jokes. (laughs) Do you prefer? And then on the um, weekends we go do the show, right? Which was it as fun as it it appeared to be? Oh yeah, it was fabulous. I mean, it was a great group. Of I mean, people. it was it was wonderful to show up in the morning and everybody would be there, kind of you know, uh, uh, pounding down the coffee sure. and going over the material. I mean, uh, we had to have, but they wanted the show to be more comedy than uh, than than anything else, and so every we we gave everybody bluff joke answers. We couldn't give them the real answer because the contestants had to know that, that, that these guys didn't know the real answers. Otherwise they would, they would agree with them every time. Right. And there'd be no game. So we had to, but we had to give them something to say before they gave them the, the real or the fake answer, whatever they were mm-hmm. going to do. Right. And, uh, so, uh, there was, a, there was a, it was a volume business. There was a lot of stuff, but in the course of the day, everybody was having fun. When we were up there, the idea was we, it was, it was a party between the nine people who were up there and Whoopi was the ringmaster and, and, and you know, she made it fun. What's your creative uh, process like when you're writing for, um, not just a show like that, but when you're writing for, for bet. Midler or Diana Ross or even the, the Academy Awards, do you, is it, are you disciplined? Do you sit down and from 10 in the morning till noon, you write jokes or stories or research or is it always different? Yeah, I actually, 
I do. I mean, all of those things, uh, the writing is tied to a specific function. If Ben is going on tour, we're putting together a show that's based on the new material musically that she's doing generally. I mean, people go on tour when they have an album to sell, although that's the old model. Now they want to sell the show tickets because they make more money that way. They don't even necessarily have a new, a new album that has always gone out when she's had a new record. So it's, it's about building the show around the new, the new musical stuff. And of course, when you are a, an established star, you're building the show around the songs, you know, you have to do, you know, mm-hmm. with that, we always, there are always like five things. She has to do the rose and wind beneath my wings and from a distance and boogie, boogie, bugle boy. And do you want to dance? Right. That has to do them in every show. So you have to figure out a way to put those in and maybe friends, which was her, her theme from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Right. But, uh, and she has various characters who she plays, you know, we had the mermaid and we had the bag lady and we had different things. So all of that writing is uh, in and out of songs and all that. So so it's it's that that's how the creative process starts. You have to figure out how you're going to make it work. What what is relevant about this particular piece of material and how you're going to how you're going to mm-hmm. do it. Uh, it's the same thing on the Oscar show. Somebody's going to come out and present an award for art direction. So you have a task in front of you, which is to make this person sparkle while talking about art direction. <laughs> <laughs> or sound effects editing or whatever that is that right. used to lead to uh, banter, which is a, 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 an expression I hate, which is, uh, you know, with two people who are unrelated come out and pretend to have a conversation mm-hmm. in front of the microphone. And it's just it almost, it almost never works unless they're mm-hmm. funny to, intrinsically. And, uh, right. um, you know, and have a character to play or something like Regardless that. Regardless so, of what you write I, for them, it's still hard to get it to work if the chemistry's not. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's a difficult you, thing. You know, one of the things that I think um, that I really appreciate about you is I know that you're also not afraid to throw everything out to go with the moment of what's actually happening in front of you. The perfect example is mm-hmm. when the Oscars that, that year with the one-handed one-arm push-ups. Yeah. You know, and, and you but, just... You you just went with it. It was well. It was a group. It was Billy Crystal hosting, and it was like his decision. He said, "Well, we uh, after Jack did that, uh, Jack Palance, we uh, said, well, we've got to you know keep talking about this.' And so, in order to make to make room for those jokes, we had to get rid of other stuff. But uh, a lot of people don't remember that Jack Palance won that Oscar for City Slickers, which was Billy's yeah. movie. Right. And Billy had sort of put him in the movie, and Billy. He was somebody who Billy always admired. And uh, so that gave Billy license to continue making that joke about him. Um, And so it was his idea. But yeah, sure, we just trashed. We got rid of a lot of stuff and wrote on the fly. fly. We won an Emmy for that show just for, for writing on the fly. And it kind of became the tradition of those award shows where right. there's writers backstage uh, waiting for the host, waiting for something to happen that the host can comment on. And uh, it's worked. It works really, really well when it works. Part of the, the, the kerfluffle right now with the Oscars finding a host is that the network and the Academy strongly believe that it helps the show to have a host because the host can play off of the live moments that happen. 
And if you have a, a no host situation, that you're not gonna. That's not gonna happen because right, you miss you're not gonna unless you get very lucky and have somebody at the right moment who is willing to uh, trash what they were going to do in order to make a joke about what happened. Mm-hmm. But that's, that becomes a negotiation and uh, it's, it's, it's not going to work. So they're, they're eager to have somebody who will for better or worse guide you through the evening, obviously not for worse <laughs> or they would, they would, they would have somebody. <laughs> But, but uh, I love the um, I love the fearlessness of of that you know the willingness and the openness to being you know just to throwing out what you have you're not attached to it because you know that there's something greater that could happen I right. mean it, it like you said it created a new uh, paradigm or a new protocol for how to write right. for award shows which is a lot more fun to watch as an audience member yeah I agree I mean and mostly it's uh, people who are comedians who are stand ups who are right. used to doing stuff themselves who are willing to do that. But occasionally you get somebody like Hugh Jackman who wants to do that. Who's, you know, mm-hmm. that's not part of his DNA. And I did a couple of Tony shows that he hosted and it worked every time. I mean, he, the audience was delighted that he would come out and make some, some remark about something that had gone on on stage before. Mm-hmm. So, but then, how then did- he's Hugh Jackman, you know, I mean, he's Wolverine who can also play Peter Allen. Be a, a gay song and dance man, right? I mean, he's he's multifaceted individual. Yeah, I was blown away when I when I saw the level of his singing and dancing. You know, because I I knew him as a just a stud. You know, a guy that sure. was this great actor. Well, you know. yeah, most people did, but you know, the, the truth is, he got started in musicals. Yeah, I mean, he like, did. Uh, a bunch of musicals in Australia. He did Sunset Boulevard and uh, Beauty and the Beast. And then he went to London and his big break was doing Oklahoma in London in a revival. And he got mm-hmm. a, a movie out of that and he became very hot uh, because they realized he could do all these things. He put all of that on the shelf to establish his movie cred. And, uh, and then after he had done all that, he said, now I want to do a musical. And his people were kind of stunned. What Wolverine? You want to sing and dance, and not just a musical, but a musical about Peter Allen, who, of course, is known in this country principally as uh, one of Liza Minnelli's husbands and uh, mm-hmm. uh, a, a bisexual um, guy who used to use that as part of his act. And uh, they didn't know that Hugh grew up in Australia, idolizing Peter Allen because Peter was a gigantic star in Australia. Right. Yeah, because he had got he had gone off, and in the Australians' uh, eyes, he had conquered the world. So it was one of those happy things that just sort of happened. And now, you know, he does musicals about P.T. Barnum, <laughs> <laughs> and now he's going to go off and do his 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 act. You know, his nightclub act. He's going to tour, are, play arena. Are you going to write for that? Maybe. You, okay. Maybe he did with done so. a few before, so I never know. Well, you know, you're also, you're not afraid to say no to people. Like I, I read that Barbara Streisand had reached out to you at one point to, to write and didn't, you know, the, her fee wasn't appropriate for your talent. So you passed. That is correct. I passed and I, and I told the story in the movie, Get Bruce, mm-hmm. um, which uh, is a documentary about me. We're doing a sequel called Had Bruce, so have a much <laughs> larger cast. And I'd like to point out it was produced by Harvey Weinstein, who never laid a hand on me. His loss. You know, yeah, me too. Why not me? (laughs) 
Are, uh, are you really doing? Um, is I there really the, a second documentary? Sorry, there. You're you're serious though about doing a second follow up documentary? No, no. Okay. No, oh, that would be great. It's just another joke that got me out of Jersey. Got it. I love the first. One. Um, I told the I told the barber story in the movie, and she got very upset. And it, you know, and it, it took her a while to uh, finally admit that it was the truth. <laughs> I hadn't made it up, <laughs> and uh, uh, and so now I think we're okay. But it was uh, yeah. She didn't you know she didn't want to pay me enough, and I, and I uh, I mean it was she lowballed me, and right. she had just had a big auction of her furniture, and she said, "What do you want me to do?" And I said, "Sell a lamp." And <laughs> right. Well, no, I was asking for the moon, mm-hmm. but we since you know I've since written for her for free for a bunch of charities. We are politically uh, aligned, right? So she does fundraisers for uh, Democrats, and uh, and I come in and do them for free because uh, I'm, you know I'm a Democrat. <laughs> well, and it's important to you. I mean, that's that's one thing you show up for a lot of important causes, you know, all around the country and the yeah. world. Well, and I, I think I got that from my parents who were very philanthropic mm-hmm. and but showed up. I mean, my father was an optometrist and on the weekends he would go up to a home to the aged and do free eye exams for people who couldn't afford to, you know, wow. or who were who were um, homebound in, in a home. Uh, and that was, uh, you know, I saw that I went with him sometimes. And so it was, uh, I learned by example. I mean, these were people who, uh, who stepped up and, um, took care of, of other people. Right. Did the right thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did, did you sing when you were a kid too, or, or was it mostly acting, writing and some dancing, you know, typical uh, theater? I sang, theater? I, I, I'm an eccentric dancer. <laughs> Which means, you know, I don't, I mean, I learn the steps, but it's nothing, you know, and it's, it's nothing that I do. It's not like I, I'm not like Tony Basil who goes, gets up and does the bar every morning. And then at right. night she's out in some, some salsa club in Boyle Heights. This is not me. Well, but you <laughs> I'm know, not something, that I, kind of a dancer. But, you know, Dick Van Dyke's the same way. When, when I worked with Dick in the recording studio, we, I asked him about his dance background and he said he had never taken a dance class in his life. You know, the first time that he danced wow. was really was Mary Poppins, you know, even though he was a comedic, you know, physical comedy actor with his Pratt Falls and things, but he literally, that was the first time he had worked learning dance steps. So well, I would put you exactly in- true. That's not exactly true because he starred on Broadway and Bye Bye Birdie in 1959 with Cheetah Rivera and they did right. dancing together. Okay. And, uh, uh, and it was, uh, someone like our champion, I think who actually staged it. So right. I think our champion did stage it as a matter of fact. So, uh, so he, he'd been around, he, he'd done a couple of twirls. Well, that makes more sense. Well, yeah. let's talk about uh, Broadway for you. He may have forgotten he... with, with the sequencing, <laughs> right? Because I also have a feeling that, you know, I have a feeling that on a soundstage with 30 guys dressed as chimney sweeps doing a routine, it It, feels much more like, you know, dancing, dancing than on Broadway with Cheetah, but doing partnering. So to be fair, because I love him and we know each other. Yeah. uh, uh, he, He, that may be what he's referring to, like that, that kind of dancing where you're at the head of a crowd. <laughs> that makes sense. Right. 
Um, you you did your off Broadway one man show, um, Bruce Blanche, almost famous, and it didn't it didn't quite fit like a standard Broadway show. Did because didn't you open up the second half to Q and A? Yeah, I did. Uh huh. I did. It's it was it was off Broadway, and it was right. uh, about twenty years ago now. But mm-hmm. uh, I did because, uh, well, I mean, it's like it worked for Carol Burnett. <laughs> yeah. How bad can it be? I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm answering your question. So, and you know, after a while, I mean, we mm-hmm. we had people. Uh, we had cards on the tables because it was it was a nightclub setting, and. Um, and they would they during intermission could fill out these cards and put them back and yeah you know, they all they most intend to ask you the same thing and so you kind of okay. have prepared responses after a while I mean you never prepared them but by doing them enough times you know what you're saying mm-hmm. uh, but there would always be some wonderful question that would just be like off the wall that uh, they would throw at me which I loved that was fun and it made the show different. Yeah, I mean, you seem always very comfortable with with spontaneity. You know that you thrive on that. Yeah, yeah. Except, I mean, I did that. That show was uh, was scripted, but it's not like Dame Edna, uh, who works with the audience. The show is working right. with the audience. There are a lot of other people. I mean, Paula Poundstone does that. So she's a genius. Mm-hmm. She does it brilliantly with the audience, and um, it wasn't that kind of a show. It was one little segment. And let me ask you about hairspray, Bruce. When did you find that the 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 stage, you know, the national tour that you did for two years, um, was that a burnout, or did you prefer to be on Broadway when you when you you know did it sitting in the same theater, or were they yeah, both I just the interesting? Whole, I love the whole thing. I mean, mm-hmm. I was uh, I loved. It was a very high end tour. I mean, we ple- we did fourteen cities. In a, in a year. Oh, so okay. it was yeah. a minimum of two weeks and most yeah. of them were three weeks and some sit downs, right. Chicago for a couple of months, San Francisco oh, for perfect. a couple of months. Right. Oh yeah. It was brilliant. And, uh, and then I, I loved, uh, I, I loved going into New York. I mean, I just love being on Broadway and there's a thing when you're on Broadway, uh, there's a community and Monday tends to be dark nights. So there are, Everybody does benefits on Monday nights. Just mm-hmm. you're never off, right. but uh, it's great. You just, it's just the one thing that I that I learned was that I'm an older bride. I was even then. Um, anything I do during the day, I will pay for on stage at night. <laughs> so the idea was to kind of yeah. you know lay low. So there wasn't a whole. I didn't have a whole lot of living to do in New York because I had to get up there and do things, or or in any of these other towns. I mean, I would do things. I would, you know, I'd manage a lunch somewhere or go look at something. But, but I, it requires I had to be a very lo- careful. Yeah, it was. Yeah. That's really what I'm curious about because it requires a lot of stamina to do a, a live, yeah, stage show. Well, also, I was, I was with a lot of. There were two of us, me and Todd Sussman, on, uh, who played Wilbur, my husband, and we were basically the oldest people in the company. And everybody else in Hairspray is like young, mm-hmm, and they're right. partying. And no matter where you are, you know, I mean, they're in Denver where you can barely breathe, and uh, right. and they're partying like crazy. Of course, they're all calling out the next day and I, we're, we're doing the show. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's like, I didn't realize I was as disciplined as I apparently was. Um, I want to ask you a wardrobe question because you're known for so many things, but of course your t-shirt collection, it was, was there 
was there a moment where you just decided this is going to be my thing or how did that happen? <laughs> uh, kind of, uh, I eased into it. It, it was, uh, well, it, first of all, I hated getting dressed. I hated, my mother was very, uh, particular and, and she dressed me up and I was a porky kid. And so n- nothing ever felt good. The shirts were always, the neck was too small and mm-hmm. uh, the tie would choke me and just everything about it. And so any chance I got, I would be in as little clothing as possible mm-hmm. or as loose fitting. And, uh, when I got to grow up and go away, I, I continued dressing like that as much as I possibly could. When I moved to LA, uh, I realized there's a whole culture here of people who can go anywhere wearing a t-shirt and t-shirts, funny t-shirts sort of began happening at that point in the seventies. Right. Right. And first I eased into it. I would wear what was called the layered look. I wear a t-shirt under an open shirt. And actually I used to wear two shirts. I used to wear one shirt on top of another shirt because to get, which I think was really just my attempt to create a, a muumuu. <laughs> <laughs> But it, it, I felt like it, you know, it gave the, my body a different look, some kind of definition, I guess. And then when I got to LA, I could realize like the T-shirt could have a statement on it, and uh, um, and I'd grown a beard by then. I'd grown a beard. Right. I was in that Marcello Mastroianni movie. I mm-hmm. had to grow a beard, and I had to have a, a three-day growth of beard. And I had to have it for six weeks. And uh, it's the most, it's ridiculous. It's so scratchy. It's awful. You, it, it kept getting cut back every day. Mm-hmm. So when I finally finished that picture, I said, that's it. I'm done shaving. And for 32 years, I didn't, I had a beard. And I shaved it for hairspray to play Edna. Because I couldn't talk them into a bearded lady. <laughs> they said, you know, the audience is making one buy already. They're making a buy that it's two men. Right. who are playing these uh, this couple, and they will accept you as a woman. I, they won't accept you as a woman with a hormone problem because that's asking right. a little too much. Yeah. It's a yeah. little too John Waters. <laughs> <laughs> did, so, you, did you feel uh, vulnerable? So I, and finally... I, haven't, I, haven't had, ouch, I haven't had the beard since then. But did you feel like the exposed or vulnerable when you had finally shaved after all those years of covering your face? Or was it liberating? Yeah, you know, I, I found, I shaved on, on live with Regis and Kelly. Oh, I forgot that. On the and they, and the, they brought a barber from Little Italy who cut me and I was bleeding. <laughs> <laughs> and once all that cleared up, I discovered that the part of my face that had been hidden by the beard for 32 years was like Beitush. It was so smooth <laughs> and so lovely because it had never endured <laughs> bad weather. Right. And I thought, well, this is it. I look younger. Oh, baby. And I live in L.A. and I look younger. I have found the magic elixir. <laughs> so, so I've never I've never grown a beard since. That's yeah, it. well, you have a beautiful face. It's, you know, it's great that you're sharing it with the world like that. <laughs> yeah, and there's that. <laughs> well, yeah. You know, most people that I know in, in the... Well, I guess most people that I know, they moved to L.A. either f- for a relationship or a job. What was one of those two things, your, part of your um, initiative for moving to L.A. and out of it was, uh, Chicago, New York? It area? was a job, actually. I mean, I was, I was living in Chicago, writing for the Trib and uh, writing for Bet and a lot of other people who I had met through writing for Bet and interviewing them for the Trib. And Ben had a dresser who, uh, whose brother started the Manhattan transfer, Tim Hauser. Mm-hmm. And, 
uh, Bet loved them, and she got her manager to manage them, and she brought Ahmed Erdogan down, and uh, he signed them to Atlantic, and we put an act together, and the act was great, and Fred Silverman was running uh, uh, TBS at the time, bought them for a summer television series, and I took a leave of absence from the trip to come out here and write the TV show. Right. And I had an agent already, so I came to L.A. with an agent and a job, which is more than most people who want to be in show business come to L.A. with. Yeah. So I was, uh, I kind of was you know, set up for the future if I wanted to be. And when we finished doing the show, I realized that I wanted to be here and I wanted to be doing that. I was kind of done with uh, doing what I'd been doing in Chicago. I was done with as I said to, to at the time to my mother, I've done chronicling the achievements of others. I want to have a couple of my own. <laughs> and that was it. That was how it happened. So I, in the, in the, the short, the shorthand is, yeah, I came out here for a job. Well, and you know, I know Bet Midler has been such a huge part of your, um, your path and your, your career would side I, and we all love her. So um, let's just talk about that for a brief moment before we get to our mm-hmm. closing questions. I I know that you met Bet. you know, you, you went out to review her show and then I believe she asked you to, you know, write some lines for her. Didn't you encourage her? That's to, true. To, to, you I said, you, you're really funny. You should talk more on stage. And she said, you got any lines? <laughs> because I, I had done an interview with her after I uh-huh. saw the show in Chicago and, uh, um, and so I began writing local jokes, you know, Chicago jokes, and then uh, those paid off great. And uh, she said, uh, her manager, Aaron Russo, said, can you come on the road? And so I would go out from Chicago on weekends. I was very well positioned because <laughs> I was in the middle of the country. So I would mm-hmm. fly out wherever she was working on the weekends because at that point she was uh, um, touring already. Right. Uh, when I first met her, she was she – you know, on Broadway and Fiddler on the Roof, and then she played the Baths and, and all of that. But this was like the big time. And uh, and that was how it began, and it hasn't stopped. <laughs> yeah, it's been it's, it's nice. been a great ride, the two of you. You know, because you've, you've co-written yeah. her um, her big shows and, you know, really helped develop yeah. some of the characters, too. The, the, didn't you? Well, how did the Sophie Tucker character come about? Well, I had seen Sophie Tucker when I was a kid uh, in Miami at a, 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 a club that Barbara Walters' father owned, Lou Walters, who owned the Latin Quarter in New York, had a club called the Palm Island Casino, which was on an island in Biscayne Bay and was kind of a front for illegal gambling. And they had all the, all the big headliners, and my parents loved Sophie Tucker, so we went to see her. Mm-hmm. and. Uh, she just kind of, I, I, her delivery, her style just influenced me. And of course, in my version of Sophie Tucker, she told dirtier jokes than Sophie Tucker actually told. Although some of them really are jokes that she did tell. But I mean, there's never, there were never any swear words in any of her jokes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, um, but they were, uh, uh, they were, you know, pretty obvious what they were. They're double entendre and really funny. Right. Anyway, and I was telling Ben about them. And uh, uh, by that point, she, we, we were doing theaters. And I think, actually, we were on Broadway at the Palace in, uh, in December of 1973. Mm. And I was telling her one night about the, the Sophie Tucker jokes. And, and, uh, and she 
so she she tried a few of them, and of course they brought the house down. And so hmm. we kind of built the character of, of Soph and her boyfriend Ernie, and uh, it became a staple of uh, of her act from then on. And she, so we can't we can't get away from them. We keep doing them. But a right. few years ago, uh, I was watching uh, Boardwalk Empire on uh, HBO, and there's a uh, the, it's, the, they go into a nightclub. It's like 1923 or something like that, and they go into a nightclub, and on the on the, it, the marquee says Sophie Tucker, and they go in, and there's uh, an actress playing Sophie Tucker, and she's doing soap jokes from Bet's Act. <laughs> Just crack me up. Just crack me up. As I'm laughing, the phone rings. It's Beth. She says, can we get money for this? <laughs> we're both, we're on two different coasts watching the same show. Right. So, <laughs> With the same question. I've sent a, I've sent a little note to um, Terrence Winter, who was writing uh, Boardwalk Empire. I uh, said, uh, thanks for the homage. I said, you know, Sophie Tucker never really did that material. This is our material. And he, he, uh, wrote me back and said, I'm going to have the, <laughs> I'm going to have all of our historians fired. <laughs> Cause apparently they, they were like, they did due diligence on everything because they wanted to create that period. I mean, I had friends who were on the show who said that the wardrobe was actually vintage uh, and it had been in mothballs for 70 years and they would fall apart when they wore it and they were always doing repairs. But that was how much they wanted it to look like the real thing. The authenticity. And I said, well, they, they, they stubbed their toe, this, <laughs> but it was pretty wonderful. And we never did give any money for it just as well. Yeah. Maybe a cheese wheel. <laughs> a Christmas cheese wheel from HBO or something like that. Bruce, we only have four minutes left in our conversation. So oh I wanna, my God, we have to save the world. Yes, we do. And and with the closing questions, and I've got two of them, three if we have time. Um, the first is, can you share three tips for success that have driven your career? Three tips in four minutes? Well, and number one is show up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just show, just show up. And, you know, by that, I mean, don't just kind of waltz and going nonchalantly, what is this? Show up prepared. Know what you're getting into. Uh, find out, you know, what the turf is and, and just you know, know what to expect. And so you'll be surprised less than you would otherwise. Good but point. it's uh, what the old line about uh, luck is um, opportunity meets preparation. Right. Is, you know, I mean, it, it sort of does hold true. I mean, yeah, there's, there's raw luck, but truly, I mean, the, the, the luck will put you in the right place at the right time and then you have to deliver. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's how okay. it is. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. If that may be three tips right there. I don't know. That's great. No, one, that's... one huge tip. <laughs> one huge tip works great. Um, my second right. question is what does making it mean to you both personally and professionally since that's what this show is called? What is making what? Sorry. Me what, too, what, is, what is making it mean to you both personally and what professionally? What is make it? Making it means, uh, I suppose that it means uh, you're at a, a level where you are happy with what you are doing and uh, you're being acknowledged by your peers. And uh, hopefully you've, uh, you know, have a roof over your head and then the plate of McNuggets in front of you or something mm -hmm. better. Yeah. 
also great answer. I guess. I mean, yeah. yeah. Well, and and also, and you've already talked about on a personal level, just the the philanthropy that you're you're able to do based on your your celebrity, your notoriety. You know, you don't waste well, that. That's, and that's a bonus. That really and, is a bonus. I mean, there's you know, all kinds of philanthropy. I mean, I. Uh, you know, when you, in, in, the, in the modern age, you can make a, an, an unimagined fortune in a minute. Uh, you can then give a lot of that away. Right. But uh, if, you, if that doesn't happen, you can show up and do service right. <laughs> right. for people. And my final question, Bruce, at this point of your life with everything that you know to be true, what would you tell your younger self? <laughs> uh, uh, you know, people have asked me that before, and I, uh, I, you know, and I, I truly don't don't know. I suppose you could say, uh, 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 get nicer, faster, or, or like uh, <laughs> uh, hone, uh, sharpen the rough edges sooner, because uh, you're in it for the long haul. I suppose that would be what I would say. But then you'd have to figure out exactly what it was referring to. <laughs> and I don't even know. <laughs> Well, Bruce, I want to thank you for spending the hour and, and sharing your stories and, and your insight. I really appreciate it. And I've always been um, a fan and uh, and and really fa- just fascinated by your career. It's been a, a beautiful no, one that you've created. I am too, I have to say. Yeah. It's, it's a strange thing. <laughs> I actually understand that. I, I, I get what you mean. Yeah. Um, yeah. Closing words, we've got about 20 seconds. Anything you want to say? Uh. No, gosh, what can I say? That's okay. <laughs> just, um, just, the, just make someone happy. In the words of the great Betty Condon Adolph Green, make someone happy. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, if you want to know more about Bruce, go to brucevalanche.com uh, mm-hmm. or don't go to Wiki <laughs> or to IMDb. <laughs> and you'll find out fascinating things that may or may not be true. Right. <laughs> Bruce, thanks for, uh, for a great hour. And thank you, everybody, for spending the hour with us and listening. I appreciate right. it. Thank you. Take care. Yeah. Tune in again next week for another great episode of Making It with Terry Wolf.